welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi Namaste and good evening. I, Chavi Jain, researcher at IMPRI, Impact and Policy Research Institute, Prabhav Evam, Niti Anusandhan Sansthan, Nai Delhi, extend my warmest welcome to you all to IMPRI, hashtag web policy talk. Today, we have gathered here for a distinguished lecture on climate change and the future of water security in South Asia. This discussion is a part of the series, The State of the Environment, Hashtag Planet Talks, organized by IMPRI, Center for Environment, Climate Change, and Sustainable Development. I would now like to introduce our speaker for today, Professor Scott Neal. Professor Scott Neal is a political scientist whose work focuses on water politics and policy. especially in China and South Asia. So, is currently a senior fellow at the Penn Water Center as well as director of China programs and strategic initiatives in the office of the provost at the University of Pennsylvania. Until 2018, Sir was a young professional and water resources management specialist with the World Bank Water Global Practice where He co-led a study of China's water sector with the Development Research Center of the State Council, and was a co-author of two flagship reports: High and Dry, Climate Change, Water, and the Economy, and Uncharted Waters: The New Economics of Water Scarcity and Variability. Previously, Sir served as Environment, Science, Technology. and health officer for china at the us department of state where he worked extensively on the paris agreement on climate change and prior to that sir was georgia ruffalo post doctoral research fellow at the harvard university so has also published widely on the full range of global water issues in leading publications including nature foreign affairs and the new york times So is also the author of Subnational Hydropolitics, Conflict, Cooperation, and Institution Building in Shared River Basins, published in 2018 by Oxford University Press. We are honored to have you with us, sir. Uh, thanks, thanks very much. Uh, I'm likewise honored to uh, to be part of uh, this uh, incredibly important uh, series, and I think it is a really Important moment to be uh, discussing environment and especially climate change uh, issues. First of all, um, uh, just as we kind of uh, uh, have been transitioning from uh, the release of the latest uh, report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the main international scientific body that produces regular assessments uh, of climate change, and as we look forward to uh, the major upcoming uh, UN Climate Conference uh, in Glasgow. Uh, Scotland in December. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and. Um, 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 
Professor Moore, if you could yeah. just give us a moment to sure. int introduce our discussants and then we could- Oh, to I'm sorry. No uh, worries. Sorry. No worries. Gun there, but yes, no please. Worries. Yes. Go ahead. Javi, over to you. No problem. Our discussants for today are Dr. Ranjana Ray Chaudhary and Dr. Indira Khurana. Dr. Ranjana Ray Chaudhary is a faculty in the Department of Regional Water Studies, Terry School of Advanced Studies, New Delhi. And Dr. Indira Khurana is the Vice Chair at Tarun Bharan Sangh, Alva, and Director at Coastal Salinity Prevention Cell. We are honored to have you both with us, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the introduction and thanks to Intri. We are looking forward to hearing Professor Moore. Same here, looking forward. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. Our moderator for today is Dr. Sidney Mehta, CEO and Editorial Director at INPRI. I would now uh, invite Dr. Sidney Ma'am to proceed with the delegation. Thank you, Ma'am, and over to you. Thank you, Chavi, and uh, thank you to everyone for joining us this uh, evening and this morning from uh, the United States. So yes, as Professor Moore already uh, began about began by telling about the sense of climate change emergency and the code red that has been highlighted um, by the IPCC sixth assessment first assessment first report of the sixth assessment report. So. It actually says that there is a lot that is happening in South Asia, which is a subcontinent in itself. And adding to the woes is the climate change emergency, which is negatively impacting the inhabitants in varied proportions. And one among the numerous implications is water, uh, is on water. So both excesses and also in shortages. So the result, uh, of this has been a lot of uncertainty, which is simply very, very magnanimous, I would say, and incomprehensible to the common mind. So uh, to make sense of uh, the phenomenon and on the future of water security in the subcontinent, uh, we have with us Professor uh, Scott Moore, um, joining us early this morning from uh, the United States. And we are so fortunate that we are joined by two eminent scholars who are also grassroots workers and water experts, uh, Dr. Khurana and Dr. Choudhury. So we are fortunate to be hosting this uh, very, very important lecture and discussion. And please accept my gratitude and warm welcome. I would uh, not take any further time and invite Professor Moore to begin with his lecture. Professor Moore, over to you. Okay, thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Mehta. Uh, I do just want to add that I'm, I'm very pleased to be joined uh, by Dr. Chaturi and, and by Dr. Karana uh, to draw on their expertise uh, as well. Um, so hopefully you can now see my screen. Yes, it's yes please go. Yes, it's, please go ahead. Uh, excellent. Yeah, no matter how many times uh, I do this, it always seems like uh, a minor miracle when screen share um, actually works. Um, but it is uh, a pleasure to be uh, with you all. Um, and I did just want to say kind of by way of, of introduction that um, as, uh, as was mentioned, uh, I'm a political scientist and, and originally uh, a China specialist. But over the last few years, I've become increasingly interested in, uh, in South Asia for a couple of reasons. Um, I think if you are, as, as I am, are interested in the politics of water, 
uh, both in terms of uh, how water uh, affects politics and political economy within countries, as well as international relations. South Asia is probably the single most uh, important and interesting area of the world from both of those perspectives. Um, given uh, that uh, so many transboundary rivers in the area uh, uh, relate both to uh, relate to a, a, a number of uh, uh, of significant geopolitical powers, China, India, Pakistan, et cetera, um, as well as uh, how significant water issues are in domestic politics uh, in India, in Pakistan, in China, uh, and other countries in the region. I think it's a very uh, rich uh, uh, case study uh, and, and globally important. Uh, in terms of the implications of water, not just domestically, but also regionally uh, and internationally. So I wanna try to touch briefly on all of those dimensions, um, hopefully spend the first uh, two thirds of the talk or so talking about uh, recent uh, changes that we've seen in terms of uh, South Asia's water resources, what we can expect going into the future uh, as climate change accelerates, but also to talk a little bit about how that might affect um, both international re uh, relations in the region, as well as a little bit domestic um, political economy as well. And you'll forgive me if I move fairly quickly uh, because I wanna give time for our discussants uh, and for some discussion as well. Just to kind of take um, a, a step back uh, and look at the big picture, this uh, map presents about 12 years of observations from a, uh, a satellite called uh, GRACE. Um, and what GRACE enables us to do uh, is basically look at how the world's uh, water resources are shifting at large uh, regional and, and even global scales. And there are basically three things that you can see in terms of what's happening to the world's water resources overall. You see the melting of, uh, uh, of the polar ice caps and to some degree uh, in the, the world's high mountain regions as well. Um, you see some precipitation shifts uh, around the world, especially in uh, the mid-latitude regions. Um, some of that is linked to natural variation, some of it to uh, climate effects, uh, most probably. And then the third thing that you see um, is groundwater depletion. And I wanna say um, a couple of words about that, uh, because if you look at um, South Asia in particular, you can see this massive uh, kind of cone of groundwater uh, depletion that's centered on uh, Northwestern India, as well as uh, parts of, of Pakistan. Um, and that's significant um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, that really signifies uh, very inefficient and unsustainable uh, water management. Basically what you're seeing here is um, the uh, taking out of very large quantities of water from the ground um, at rates that are far in excess um, of the rate at which that water is naturally uh, replenished. Um, so essentially you're, you're overdrawing the groundwater account, um, so to speak, the other thing to note um, is that this has a significant linkage to climate change because groundwater is really what you turn to in times of drought or water shortage. Um, so if you're taking, uh, if you have sort of unsustainable rates of groundwater depletion, what you're doing is uh, depriving yourself of this kind of crucial reserve um, that exists, particularly for irrigated agriculture uh, in times of drought or water shortage. So this is all to say that if we sort of take a global perspective of what's happening to water, we do see these significant uh, climate related shifts, but we also see really inefficient and unsustainable patterns of water management um, that then make uh, the sort of climate change effects of water that much more significant um, and concerning. Um, and it does bear uh, emphasis that what we've uh, seen from the latest IPCC report released just a few um, weeks ago um, continues to be a pretty 
uh, concerning uh, set of predictions with respect to future uh, warming. Um, this uh, uh, graph is from the IPCC report, or this graphic rather, um, shows um, a couple of uh, uh, projections for different uh, rates and levels of uh, warming above pre-industrial levels. The two things that I want to focus your attention on are the two um, panels in the middle. Those are the ones with green coloring, um, and that depicts precipitation. Uh, the panel on the left, um, so sort of closest to the, to the left-hand side of the slide, um, looks at essentially summer uh, precipitation, uh, and the panel uh, next to it uh, on the right uh, pro uh, projects or, or um, depicts uh, winter um, precipitation. And you can see uh, essentially uh, shifts in the predicted intensity of the monsoon. Um, and basically what you see is uh, we can expect uh, significantly decreased precipitation during the summer months um, and increased precipitation um, during the winter months. Um, in some cases, very significantly. And if you look at the bottom of the graphic, that four degrees um, of, of warming scenario, um, you see really uh, strong intensity, uh, changes in intensity of that uh, expected precipitation. And that actually gets to one point I want to emphasize, particularly when it comes to South Asia and water and, and climate change. Um, typically, the concern centers on water uh, shortage, uh, drought, and scarcity. And yet, um, probably uh, having too much water uh, and uh, in the case of, uh, of flooding is as significant a risk and a hazard and a challenge um, for water management in the region. Um, perhaps uh, goes without saying, but also important to emphasize, one of the main climate effects uh, that uh, we're concerned about in the South Asia region um, is the is uh, melting of uh, glaciers uh, and snowpacks in the uh, high Himalaya. Uh, and throughout the Himalayan Plateau. This is a region that is commonly referred to as the third pole uh, because of its uh, high, high elevation and high uh, uh, rates of warming. And one of the things that's sort of counterintuitive about climate effects uh, in the South Asia region is that rates of, uh, of warming uh, actually tend to be uh, higher in the high elevation uh, regions. You can see that uh, over toward the right-hand side of the slide, um, there's a, a graph there of temperature um, against uh, elevation. Um, and essentially, and, and unsurprisingly, what you see here is a pretty rapid and significant melting, um, particularly of glaciers. Um, the bars that you see in the center portion of the graph there, uh, the red bars show uh, loss of uh, glacier mass, the blue bars show gain, and as you can see, uh, the loss uh, dramatically outweighs uh, any gain, and the majority of glaciers uh, in the high Himalaya have uh, suffered a loss of mass uh, over the last couple of decades. Also worth noting in the sort of top uh, right uh, portion of the graph there, uh, you can see that the um, uh, rates of uh, glacial mass loss uh, in the Himalaya have been pretty much in the middle, um, globally speaking. So the highest rates of, uh, of uh, ice mass loss have been seen in areas like the Andes, um, while the lowest have been seen in um, places like the Arctic. Um, so uh, the Himalaya region sort of sits uh, roughly in the middle in terms, in globally, in terms of what this looks like. But this is the significant, probably the single most significant climate effect uh, that we're seeing here is a pretty dramatic uh, loss uh, in terms of, uh, of glacial mass and to some degree um, snowpack. Uh, uh, mass loss as well. Um, the major implication of this for uh, South Asia hydrology 
uh, is that it's increasing the volume of flow in a lot of the major uh, rivers temporarily. Um, and it bears emphasis that this is not a, you know, uh, kind of sustainable phenomenon in the sense that um, once uh, the glaciers melt, once the snowpack uh, shrinks as a result of warming, it's not going to come back. So we are seeing a significant increase in the volume of flow um, uh, in major uh, rivers uh, as that uh, as we see that melting, but that is going to eventually taper off um, probably toward the end of the century. The timeline, of course, depends a little bit on the rates of warming that we actually experience. But what you see here in this graph um, is just the degree to which glacial and snowpack um, meltwater contributes uh, to the flow of the major rivers. You can see the uh, Indus, the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, Salween, uh, et cetera, um, portrayed there. Um, and it does depend river to river. Uh, the Indus depends uh, more so than the other uh, major rivers on uh, glacial melt, um, but it's a significant contributor to virtually all of these um, uh, all of these major rivers, in addition, of course, to snowpack uh, melt. Uh, one thing that, uh, and this, of course, has a lot of effects, but one that I think is worth spending a couple of minutes on is the phenomenon of GLOPs, uh, glacial lake outburst floods. Um, and this uh, underscores uh, what I mentioned earlier that um, one of the sort of paradoxes of uh, climate-related uh, water impacts in South Asia is that having uh, too much water uh, in the form of flooding uh, can be just as hazardous and challenging as having too little. Um, and GLOFs uh, essentially are uh, floods that are caused by uh, glacial meltwater. Um, these uh, lakes uh, are created when you have um, either uh, uh, ice from a glacier or a, uh, uh, a terminal moraine, which often sits at the, at the bottom of glaciers, or some other geologic feature that causes the meltwater from a glacier to be impounded. And then um, through a variety of circumstances, whether it's an earthquake uh, or melting of ice dams or other things, um, that uh, uh, dam fails, that natural dam fails, and you get uh, significant floods. And there have been a number of recent um, uh, such uh, GLOFs experienced, and that's a hazard that will continue to, um, to increase as we see um, glacial uh, melt increase and as we see the size of those lakes uh, increase. And this graph here just depicts roughly um, the distribution of uh, risk that we can expect from GLOFs. As you can see, it's uh, centered primarily uh, in the central and eastern portions of the Himalaya. Um, one thing that I do want to touch briefly on is the role of uncertainty. Um, and uh, while the uh, overall effects uh, in terms of warming uh, and in terms of, uh, uh, of an increased volume of flow in the major Asian rivers in the medium term, followed by a significant decrease in the long term. That's all um, you know, very close to certain. Um, but there are significant uncertainties at the kind of more uh, local level, the, the kind of more fine scaled you get, the greater the uncertainty is. Um, this is a map of different, um, uh, uh, the projected future uh, precipitation change um, as a result of uh, climate on several um, portions of the Indus Basin. Um, and and uh, the left and right-hand portions of the graph depict the results of different climate models that are used to predict those precipitation changes. And you can see that the model projections um, are very different in terms of the, the degree of per, uh, perceived change. So just to underscore that we do have some uh, significant uncertainty when it comes to um, local uh, uh, and sort of sub-basin scale impacts um, in terms of water resources. 
Uh, in the big picture, though, uh, we're certainly going to see increased variability. And that's one thing I want to um, underscore. It's not just the fact that we can expect uh, the volume of flow in major rivers to decrease significantly over the long term, for example. Probably the more important impact is that the uh, availability of water in major river basins and aquifers um, is going to become a lot more uncertain uh, in terms of uh, parts of the year. And here um, you see uh, projected uh, 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 water availability essentially or flow uh, uh, across different uh, months of the year for different sub-basins in the Indus uh, 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 macro kind of river basin. Um, and you can see the, the dark blue line is uh, baseline. So in virtually all uh, sub-basins, you see really significant shifts um, in what we can expect for water availability at different points throughout the year. This is a major challenge, uh, not just for policymakers, for water manager, managers, um, but very much so for uh, water users, uh, especially farmers. Who have grown accustomed uh, to you know some degree of uh, annual predictability and interannual predictability of uh, flow. Um, so this is a really significant uh, challenge going forward. Um, just to kind of briefly highlight too, um, as significant as the impact will be for uh, agriculture and of course in South Asia, as uh, is the case globally, ir uh, irrigated agriculture is the, the dominant water use. Uh, but these changes and especially the variability is going to have a major impact on cities as well. Um, and I wanted to just briefly highlight the case of Chennai um, as one among many examples of this. 2015, uh, Chennai experienced uh, uh, pretty significant um, flooding that was uh, very unusual in terms of the time of year it, um, uh, it occurred, or at least uh, the time of year combined with the volume uh, of flooding that it experienced. Just a couple of years later, um, Chennai experienced a very significant uh, water shortage event. And it has to be said that this event was not solely due to uh, climate change. There were lots of other factors uh, at play. But the takeaway was that the city's water reserves were depleted essentially to nothing. Um, the photo there depicts the, the major reservoir um, that supplies uh, the Chennai uh, metro region. Uh, and it came sort of very close to uh, uh, water supplies uh, being disrupted uh, to the majority of urban residents. Lots of people had to depend on tanked uh, tanker truck water deliveries as opposed to municipal water supplies. And that really underscores um, the degree of potential disruption uh, of these uh, climate-related water shifts uh, in the future for uh, South Asia's urban areas as well as its uh, rural and agricultural areas. One point I just want to highlight very briefly, although I'm obviously focusing on climate change uh, water-related water effects here, uh, also bears uh, emphasis that there are other things going on that uh, exacerbate the impact of climate-related uh, water shifts. One of them is pollution. Uh, the commonly cited statistic is that about 80% of India's surface water resources are contaminated. That, frankly, uh, is probably low. Um, this is just a, uh, you know, any one of many photos that I could have displayed. It's uh, toxic foam uh, on some, uh, some uh, waterways uh, outside of Bangalore. And the, the net effect of this, I mean, obviously, there's a, a really uh, significant and concerning uh, environmental health dimension of this. But effectively, this contamination is also reducing the quantity of water resources that's available uh, in total. So when you um, think about disruption uh, to, uh, uh, to water resources, both in terms of the time of year that we can expect it, as well as periods of drought or water shortage, the fact that there's so much contamination uh, of the water resources that, do, that does exist or that do exist effectively reduces the supply of available water even further. Um, so these issues, although they have 
different causes in terms of climate change versus uh, environmental pollution uh, do have a kind of combined effect um, that's very negative in terms of water resources. Um, I wanna now shift briefly to just talking about some of the implications of these changes. Um, and one of the things that you often hear um, is a sort of linkage between the idea of increasing pressure on water resources, especially forms of, of uh, water scarcity and increased uh, prospect of violent conflict, especially um, warfare. And I just, you know, sort of put up here uh, two uh, relatively well-known statements of that, um, uh, that predicted linkage between um, uh, uh, water challenges and especially uh, scarcity and shortage uh, and the likelihood uh, of conflict. Uh, and as you can see, particularly um, at the bottom, this has been uh, a, 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 a hypothesis or a prediction that's been especially influential uh, when it comes to South Asia. Um, and and uh, certainly uh, there are lots of good um, sort of uh, uh, examples that you can point to of major international tensions um, over water, especially between uh, India and China. And one thing that's definitely worth highlighting uh, here is uh, the inclusion uh, in the late China's latest uh, five-year plan, the 14th five-year plan of what seems to be in uh, large-scale uh, development of hydropower in uh, the upper Brahmaputra, uh, especially centered on uh, what's known as the Great Bend of the Brahmaputra. Um, this is a, um, a particular part of the world um, that has one of the highest hydropower uh, potential in the world, um, always has, um, and the predictions are that uh, uh, constructing a, a series of hydro plants uh, in this region could potentially generate about 60 gigawatts um, of hydropower. Uh, that is, that would make it by far the world's largest uh, hydro dam, about three times uh, the size of China's Three Gorges, um, which is the largest existing uh, hydropower dam in terms of uh, installed capacity, um, has generated a lot of concern, um, understandably enough, uh, in India uh, and in uh, South Asia, more generally Bangladesh, in terms of its uh, potential implications um, if built. And yet, um, there's also a lot of misconception when it comes to uh, thinking about these uh, the potential linkage between uh, whether it's development of a hydro dam or uh, or increasing water scarcity in the basin, um, and what that might actually mean for um, international relations and cooperation over shared water resources. Something that I think is important to emphasize in the the case of the Brahmaputra um, is that the uh, majority of precipitation. It's actually about 93. Uh, percent um, of precipitation um, uh, in the Brahmaputra Basin actually comes from uh, Indian territory, which uh, in turn means that the vast majority of the flow, particularly in the lower Brahmaputra, actually does originate from within Indian territory, uh, meaning that uh, large uh, upscale uh, dam, uh, sorry, large uh, upstream dam construction, um, while it would have a lot of uh, disruptive effects on uh, the river's hydrology, actually wouldn't in, uh, affect the overall volume of flow in the basin um, all that much. Um, and that diversions associated with that construction would actually have a somewhat limited uh, impact. And this graph just shows the spatial distribution um, of precipitation in the basin. Again, you can see that um, the majority uh, is concentrated within Indian territory, which is the sort of lower half um, of the basin map that you see there uh, in, that, uh, in that chart. At the same time, it's somewhat ironic that uh, although there's a lot of attention placed on the prospect for uh, conflict over water uh, in South Asia, in fact, South Asia plays host to one of the more successful uh, international water agreements in the world, the Indus Water Treaty. 
Um, there's certainly a lot to say about this that we can get into in discussion, um, but two things I wanna say about it. One, uh, while far from a perfect uh, agreement, um, it has uh, survived three full-scale wars as well as several uh, kind of lesser conflicts between India and Pakistan. Uh, the members of the Permanent Indus Commission, the body that represents India and Pakistan um, uh, and sort of effectively administers the treaty, has continued to meet most recently uh, in March uh, 2021, despite uh, the pandemic. Um, and this has uh, really been uh, almost unique in terms of uh, India-Pakistan uh, relations, that it has been relatively unaffected um, by conflict uh, and by tension between the two countries um, over the last uh, almost 80 years since the treaty was uh, was concluded. That being said, um, uh, it, particularly within India, it's become increasingly controversial um, of late. And that actually gets to one thing that I want to talk a little bit more about, um, which is how uh, water issues have become very politicized, uh, especially within India, to some degree within Pakistan as well. And it become a real focal point for uh, political conflict. Uh, I want to say just one last um, thing, uh, again, in sort of the vein of um, uh, of uh, a bit of a counter to this idea of uh, water challenges uh, leading to conflict. Uh, it's worth uh, underscoring the potential for uh, international and regional benefit sharing from hydropower development. China certainly has, this is a, a table that shows the distribution of estimated hydropower potential percentage-wise uh, in the uh, Himalayan region. And as you can see, China has uh, kind of the, the majority, um, but uh, India and Bhutan and uh, Nepal isn't depicted, but Nepal as well have significant uh, portions of hydropower uh, capacity uh, and potential as well. And there's a lot of potential for uh, power sharing agreements and joint infrastructure development that could benefit uh, multiple countries instead of uh, just one. Uh, we can certainly come back to that. Um, just briefly want to highlight that uh, throughout uh, India's recent political history, really uh, certainly ever since independence, but even going much further back, um, the central government in particular has uh, co continually confronted um, challenges uh, with respect to uh, water management and especially um, relating to conflicts and disputes between uh, uh, Indian states. Um, and that's something that continues to be an issue. We'll, uh, I'll, I'll touch briefly on that, uh, back on that in a second. But suffice it to say um, that water has continually, water management issues have kind of continually tested uh, the governance framework that exists uh, uh, in uh, the Indian Union and India's federal system, uh, as well as Indian politics uh, more generally. Um, one particular way of looking at that uh, that I think is, is significant um, is um, uh, uh, in terms of um, the increasing weaponization uh, uh, and politicization of water issues. And this is something that I think really makes uh, the case of uh, India stand out to some degree, Pakistan as well, globally. Um, and as part of my, uh, the book that uh, was mentioned at the, at the outset, um, I actually looked at a number of case studies of these sort of um, uh, water conflicts that occur within countries around the world. And one thing that uh, stands out in terms of South Asia and India in particular uh, is the degree to which uh, water issues have been sort of taken up by uh, particularly uh, regional political parties as major wedge issues. Um, things that uh, are used to mobilize supporters um, and to uh, vilify opposition parties. 
Um, and you uh, have one sort of aspect of this that's particularly interest, interested me um, is how uh, water issues have come to define politics in Telangana since it became a state in 2014 uh, and separated from AP, Andhra Pradesh. Um, and this is sort of an interesting case because um, you can sort of see how a newly independent state and the political leaders um, that lead it um, effectively took uh, water issues as a major um, way of essentially establishing a separate identity um, from their for former parent state um, and creating this sort of conflictual uh, relationship. And there are just a few uh, uh, quotes there that I think sort of illustrate um, the progression of this, uh, of this uh, politicization uh, just in the first few years after Telangana uh, became a state. You see uh, statements like from the Telangana CM saying things like that the AP government uh, has taken a vow to destroy farmers uh, in Telangana. You get this very charged, politicized, uh, weaponized language around water that contributes uh, to a lot of tension uh, and conflict and in turn um, really prevents effective uh, water management uh, throughout India. Um, just to kind of uh, also emphasize that it's not a phenomenon that just takes place in India. Uh, you see uh, some similar dynamics in Pakistan, although there um, the interstate uh, disputes are less significant uh, than the degree to which uh, uh, failures of kind of water uh, supply and availability have become a significant uh, cause of discontent uh, just from citizens um, and particularly uh, the middle class, urban middle class um, dissatisfaction, both with uh, local political leaders, as well as to some extent, the national government. So the, the point I want to draw from uh, all of these kind of cases is that um, these climate related water challenges uh, combined with uh, issues like pollution uh, are really stressing uh, politics and political systems, uh, particularly within India, but elsewhere in South Asia. Uh, and in some ways, um, that is kind of a more concerning development um, than uh, the stresses that climate related water uh, uh, issues have placed on the international uh, dimension. So I'll go ahead and stop there. Uh, look forward to some comments from discussants and then some uh, broader discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Moore. That was an excellent presentation and so many uh, points you have raised very, very pertinent. So I would now invite uh, Dr. Indira to um, share her remarks. And ma'am, what do you think? There are several questions that have been raised very important. So could you please uh, elaborate? Over to you, ma'am. Ma'am, please unmute. Uh, yeah, first yeah. of all, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. And uh, uh, I don't know how to thank you, Dr. Moore. You have uh, uh, given such a such a comprehensive uh, view, perspective, uh, replete with data about the situation of, uh, of uh, water resources uh, in South Asia and also looked specifically at uh, India. You've also looked at the politics. So uh, uh, really, really thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, that. Uh, there are so many thoughts, actually. I don't know where to start and uh, you know where to end. I think uh, 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 one of the challenges I feel, and I, it, it came at a very timely, uh, personally, for me, uh, uh, Professor Maud, this uh, this talk by you came at a very timely. Uh, it came at it was really timely because uh, just in the beginning of this month, uh, we've started the Indian Himalayan River Basins Council, uh, uh, which is looking at uh, so the Himalayan states as well as the states in the plains uh, where the Himalayan rivers flow 
or other rivers get into the Himalayan uh, rivers. So this is covering about 23 states. And uh, it was uh, precisely for uh, the challenges that you mentioned that we felt that there was a need uh, to do this for the Himalayan region. And we also have a similar council uh, formed for the peninsular uh, rivers. But the main, uh, the main objective of this is to create awareness about the situation of water and uh, how people can connect to rivers and water given the challenges that you have stated. And on top of all those challenges that we have, we now have the challenges of uh, uh, climate change and how it's going to alter the, uh, you know, the water cycle and the availability and excess and shortage of uh, water availability. So uh, that's why I wanted to connect this with the kind, this kind of effort that we are uh, uh, doing. Um, I think uh, if you were just coming to the points around climate change, I think uh, uh, what uh, reducing emissions is to mitigation, I think uh, water is to adaptation. Uh, so we really need to say, uh, see how we can uh, manage our water given uh, the situation that we are faced in. And even what you, uh, what you mentioned about, uh, uh, you know, about uh, Chennai and uh, uh, other states in India, in fact, uh, you know, I write uh, popular articles on water and all these uh, climate change, etc. But I've stopped giving data as to, okay, Calcutta was flooded, uh, Patna was flooded, Chennai was flooded, Delhi was flooded, because every day there is another city. Right now, I think uh, Calcutta is in the uh, throes of uh, the complete city's water lock. They shut off the sluice gates for the Hooghly because, uh, you know, the otherwise the Hooghly River water will come in. So, Historically, we have been mismanaging our water, and now we have this uh, issue about uh, climate change. And I think what the last couple of months uh, really showed us that earlier it used to be something that would happen in the uh, underdeveloped or developing nations, but now this kind of crisis is all over the world. Uh, it's uh, you name an African country, you name Middle East, you name South Asia, uh, the Americas, it's there, Europe, it's there everywhere. And uh, I think there's so many aspects to this. I mean, okay, first you would look at humanitarian aid. I'll just cite one aspect. Okay, we will get humanitarian aid from, from USA or from Europe. But right now they themselves are going to be struggling through the, the kind of challenges because of climate change. So that is going to shrink uh, the kind of uh, resources that are available. And we also want to, uh, we need to reflect that are we going to, are we happy, uh, content with just going from one disaster to another disaster to another disaster. Is that the way that we want to live all the time trying to, you know, to manage the disasters and uh, not really look at the aspirations uh, of uh, countries. So I think it calls for serious uh, uh, thinking within the country, within the, uh, within the region. And we must have science that informs our policy. I think the challenge is that scientists sometimes pick up courage to say, you know, you do, you can't do this, you shouldn't do this because it's going to affect your uh, hydrological regime, but still uh, the politicians go ahead and make uh, decisions which are contrary to good uh, water management. So I think that's why I feel the work about raising water awareness and getting more people's voices into, uh, into informing government and policy is, uh, uh, is important. Uh, I uh, also, you mentioned about groundwater. I mean, it's ironical that in the, which I think you showed North India is where we have a really hard, uh, severe extraction of groundwater. And yet that is the Ganga 
you know, the Ganga River Basin. So you have so much of water, but still in that area, you're doing so much of groundwater extraction. So it shows, uh, again, it shows how poorly we have been managing our uh, uh, water resources. And whereas groundwater is actually should be a reserve bank, it should be the Reserve Bank of India. That's the groundwater resource. But that's something that we are just sucking out, sucking out without putting uh, uh, water back inside. So I think uh, we really need to look hard at how we can uh, right now manage our, our water because uh, we may uh, focus a lot and we need to focus on reducing our emissions. So, so that's one part. But the crisis is on us right now. So how do, what can we do? And this is what I want to uh, ask you also at a decentralized small people scale. What is it that we can do to at least minimize the impact of the, uh, of the disasters, if not get, uh, you know, kind of do away with the disasters because now it's, I think, a chain reaction that has started. But how do we minimize uh, uh, the effects uh, on ourselves? And you mentioned variability and uncertainty. So I wrote an article saying that when weather scientists do crystal ball gazing, because that's what they said, that uh, you know the, uh, the extreme weather event in Europe, the extreme heat wave in Canada, that they could not foresee that it would be so such an extreme and for so long. You know, so they're asking for better computers, supercomputers. Is that really the solution? The solution lies in better, uh, uh, better management of uh, water. And uh, the last point I'd say is that we share rivers, but we also share groundwater uh, uh, aquifers with our neighboring countries. So that itself is something else that we need to uh, look at. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the system has become very uh, aggressive. Uh, we don't believe in soft diplomacy anymore. We don't believe in civil society, civil society, uh, you know, discussions, uh, negotiations, uh, understanding each other's perspective, be it across country borders or be it within states or between the rural and urban divide in India. So I think those options, uh, we really need to uh, uh, look forward to more. And uh, I'd really like to ask you, okay, now what do we do? What do people at like us, you know, who, who are concerned, who want to do something, and there are many more, the thousands more, the hundred thousand more. What is it that we can do to uh, kind of reduce the, the stress that we are facing ourselves? So thank you. Thank you for now. Thank you, ma'am, for raising very important points. So uh, I would now invite Dr. Ranjana to share your comments. So uh, thank you very much, Simi. And Professor Moore, yes, uh, uh, South Asia is very, it's a very thickly populated region. So very timely, your talk. And thanks to Emri as well. And uh, Indira, Madam, too, um, the points that you raised. So I would like to say a few things. First of all, uh, you know, we at Terry School of Advanced Studies, it is a Department of Regional Water Studies. So that Regional Water Studies was, um, was set up up with a vision to look at the water challenges in the region as a region. The other is we have done a little bit of work in the city of Gurgaon and uh, that uh, as we know Gurgaon is adjacent to Delhi it is in the national capital region but this groundwater depletion that you are talking about in northwestern India it is very rampant in uh, Gurgaon. 
Gurgaon is a uh, is a city where it is heavily dependent on groundwater, and the levels have gone down quite uh, fast. So uh, the green corridor of the Aravalis, which used to be used for recharging the groundwater there, whatever groundwater recharge was possible, that is being depleted heavily. So and because of the um, uh, real estate prices there and encroaching of that area, so it's really worrisome. So we really need a policy. So we look forward to hear from you what kind of a policy should we have so that the groundwater recharge is imperative why is it that the you know the awareness levels are not at where it should be regarding the groundwater recharge what is the way forward how do we go about it the other is you mentioned about telangana and um, use of Krishna River waters. Uh, if we go a further down to the Delta region of Bay of Bengal, we see that River Krishna no longer has any water. In fact, they have that basin closure problem where the utilization of water has been so much to the canal system that in the Delta, the farmers are forced to use groundwater again. And that has led to ingress of saline water from the Bay of Bengal to the Delta region of Krishna River. So they are facing twin challenges of River Krishna not having too much water in the, in the Delta region. And the second is that there is an ingress of uh, seawater. And so the groundwater is also becoming saline. So a very challenging for the farmers there. And the other issue about water security and climate change that I would, uh, you know, want uh, you and uh, uh, Madam Indira to also reflect on, and perhaps we could have a small discussion on the fact that, uh, you know, we are talking in terms of increasing sugarcane production for the fact that we want to go for biofuel, uh, you know, ethanol production. And we are also thinking of um, going for palm oil production, palm oil being cheaper. And again, in the northeastern region where there is a lot of rainfall, but both palm oil as well as sugarcane are real water guzzlers. They need a lot of water. So when there is going to be climate change and we are entering this period of uncertainty, uh, how wise are we in our decision uh, to be you know, actually going for increasing sugarcane production and palm oil production? So can we uh, suggest a way forward for that? So those are my uh, immediate thoughts. Thank you very much. Sure, thank you, ma'am. So I would request Professor Moore to respond to the remarks that have been made by our panelists. Professor Moon. Uh, thank you uh, again, Dr. Maitan. I want to thank uh, Dr. Karana and Dr. Shadari for uh, a very uh, provocative uh, uh, series of comments. And uh, I think uh, the major point which they both uh, quite rightly raise is, well, okay, great. Uh, you know, we understand the, uh, the extent of the problem. What, what can and what should we do about it? Um, so I'll try to offer a couple of, uh, of thoughts on that, you know, uh, with, with some humility. I mean, you know, if, um, uh, if I think any one person uh, had all the answers, uh, you know, we would have probably done these things a long time ago and certainly would have um, if they were easy. So, uh, you know, very few of them are easy. But um, I want to start um, uh, at the level of kind of individual uh, responsibility. What can individuals do? Um, about these these problems because it's you know it, it, that is obviously uh, critically important in terms of thinking about our own uh, levels of responsibility for these uh, very large global um, challenges uh, and I think um, there are 
um, a couple of, of really uh, important, at least three important things that you can do as an individual uh, person to, to lower uh, your impact on, um, on uh, the world's kind of water stresses uh, and co individual contributions to the world's water crisis. Um, the first, which is admittedly um, something that uh, South Asia scores much better on than most of the rest of the world um, is to uh, eat less meat. Um, just globally speaking, uh, kind of most forms of uh, livestock raising have an outsized uh, water footprint uh, as compared to uh, consumption of, uh, of fruits and vegetables. Um, legumes are especially um, kind of water uh, efficient. So uh, again, South Asia kind of from a culinary perspective already doing much better than most uh, other regions of the world, but that's sort of part one. Um, part two, I, I try to drink as, uh, as little bottled water as possible. Now, granted, that's a challenge where water quality is, um, you know, is an issue or where municipal water services may not be very reliable. Um, but as a general matter, um, that is something that deprives uh, municipal water services of uh, important revenue. Uh, and the uh, kind of footprint associated with just transporting bottled water um, is very uh, harmful. Often it's drawn from already stressed uh, groundwater reserves, and then you have the fuel and the energy that's needed to transport uh, to transport that bottled water uh, to where you consume it. And one of the things that's kind of um, interesting about water and important to keep in mind from a climate change perspective is that um, water has a, a, a very high, uh, 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 it's very um, heavy uh, and ex therefore expensive and energy intensive to transport per unit volume. Um, so you do have very significant energy demands associated with the transport of water, um, whether it's piped water or um, you know, crates of, of bottled water. Um, the third thing is just uh, to recycle uh, products as much as, uh, as you can. When you buy a new shirt, um, this is an old shirt, by the way, um, uh, the water footprint embedded in growing the cotton that's made, used to make that shirt, for example, um, is very uh, uh, is very significant. Um, so to the extent to which um, you know, particularly things like fabrics, um, things that have a high water footprint uh, can be recycled, that's obviously uh, going to facilitate uh, conservation of water as well. Um, kind of, but you know, at the same time, these are very large scale global challenges, and so um, even as it's important to kind of think about individual responsibility, there's no denying that we need you know, policy action by uh, national governments and by the world at large to tackle um, all of these challenges. And so I'll, I'll kind of get to um, uh, now more to that. And I think some of the most important policy um, changes that uh, governments can make, um, this actually includes, um, actually in, in the case of India in particular, this is primarily state level responsibility to some degree municipal. Um, rather than, than central or national government. Um, but thinking about land management um, is really significant. Um, I, I believe, and I apologize if I, uh, I get this attribution wrong, I believe it was Dr. Chaudhuri who, who brought up uh, changes in sort of land use as a, a contributor to groundwater um, withdrawal and things like uh, forest cover uh, and having trees that uh, retain, uh, help to retain water in the soil, that can really significantly affect uh, things like groundwater um, storage. Uh, uh, and again, the availability of groundwater in times of drought. Um, so having policies that uh, preserve uh, forest land, that uh, uh, kind of uh, protect um, uh, surface water resources, that create buffers 
um, between uh, urban built up areas and uh, major rivers. They can reduce pollution, they can help increase water storage. Um, those types of, of policies can be really significant uh, in terms of how land use shapes uh, water use uh, and water management. Um, another really important thing is uh, water pricing. Um, you know, one thing about water that you have to say, it is a critical resource. So there are really important equity considerations at play and you, you don't wanna have a sort of unrestricted, you know, sort of free for all market pricing of water. Um, but nonetheless, um, increasing the price of water, um, particularly for agricultural users uh, can be effective in encouraging conservation. Um, so I think that's a, an important policy tool that has to be figured into the mix. Again, politically, usually not popular, um, but it is an important policy uh, uh, kind of instrument to, to, to remember and take account of. The last thing I would point out, which kind of gets to the value of, of this uh, discussion hosted by IMPRI, uh, is NGO involvement. Um, one of the problems with water uh, kind of uh, from a political perspective and a policy perspective um, is that it does tend to uh, get very uh, kind of controversial on one hand uh, and on the other hand uh, to have uh, to be sort of channeled through very specialized, highly technical um, bodies like, uh, you know, uh, engineering uh, uh, departments or, um, you, know, you know, irrigation uh, departments, things like that, that aren't necessarily equipped to think about all of the many complex implications uh, of uh, how you manage uh, and allocate and use water. And I think a really important role that NGOs can play is to try to help uh, kind of bring together lots of uh, interests when it comes to the use of water. And again, one thing that's uh, you know distinctive about water as a resource is that it's absolutely critical uh, to every community, every population, every economic sector. Um, so to some degree, you do have to bring um, many different interests and stakeholders and perspectives together to have effective uh, and efficient um, water management. Um, the last thing, which you know, I'll just touch on briefly, but um, you know, one of the most effective kind of water management policies um, globally would be uh, some eff effective climate mitigation strategies, and that gets back to I think the importance of of anticipating. Uh, the climate conference that'll take place uh, in Glasgow in December. Uh, and I may just say a quick word about that. I, I've been involved in, um, I was involved in the Paris Agreement uh, uh, discussions. I had a brief uh, period of service in the US government. Um, and this is um, obviously an extremely complex issue, but one thing I, I think we have to both acknowledge and at the same time get beyond um, is the idea that, um, that uh, every major economy doesn't have to fundamentally transform itself um, as a result of climate concerns. This is particularly significant in the case of India because India's per capita emissions um, are a fraction uh, of those of the US or even China uh, and other, most other large economies. So there's a very um, you know, understandable um, and strong political current in India uh, saying that uh, to the effect that, well, you know, the majority of this problem has been caused by other countries. India remains, uh, you know, very much in a developmental stage. Um, so, you know, while it will uh, take on significant commitments, uh, it's not going to, uh, you know, agree to, to significantly reduce its emissions, particularly over the medium term. Um, and that while understandable, um, that will lead us to catastrophe. 
uh, because of the sheer size of India's economy and its contribution, not just to current emissions, but also to future uh, projected emissions. So where I think that takes us um, is we do need a lot more focus on uh, joint financing of clean technology. So for example, carbon capture uh, technology that might allow India to keep uh, burning some coal, um, but without reduce, um, actually uh, you know, releasing the related emissions into the atmosphere, um, as well as uh, financing to help um, uh, marginal and vulnerable populations uh, in India and elsewhere adapt. So I do think this has to be you know, something where uh, the developed world kind of puts uh, its money where its mouth is, so to speak. And yet at the same time, I do think um, it's critical for uh, constituencies within India to help us move beyond this sort of developed versus developing countries uh, divide. It may not be exactly fair, it may not be exactly just, um, but where we are in our climate crisis is such that um, we just have to cut emissions and cut them very, very quickly if we're to avoid uh, catastrophe. Great, thank you, sir. Um, Indira, ma'am, would you like to uh, respond to uh, Dr. Ranjana's query? And uh, if, if you want to add anything, what ma'am has just spoken, please unmute, ma'am. Yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, I think, yes, definitely we need uh, the issue about uh, proper groundwater policies that is, has been around for the longest. Uh, the challenges have been around for the longest time. So we really need to uh, see how we move forward uh, uh, on that. And uh, my, my, my perspective is that India with its, uh, you know, with some of the traditional practices and decentralized approaches, uh, if we really get serious on that, and even the government of India, the water ministry, Jal Shakti, has started campaigns uh, for replenishing uh, groundwater. So if you take that seriously and coupled with some of the things which uh, Dr. Professor Moore said about uh, you know, reducing water footprint and recycling and reusing, I think that's uh, something that we could do. Uh, the challenge, what she mentioned about uh, palm, uh, the palm uh, cultivation, I mean, that's a big challenge because you're also going to uh, cut forests, which are uh, you know, virgin forests, and you're going to do uh, this palm plantations and what's that going to do to the ecology and what is that going to do to the water, how the water flows? Because that does affect uh, the flow of water. Uh, professor has already told us that you need to have, uh, uh, you know, trees which can uh, retain moisture and so, you know, your soils are uh, moist. So I think that's going to be a challenge. And the other thing that we do now is we have compensatory afforestation uh, in another place that's allowed now. So if you're cutting forests in Andaman and Nicobar, you can do the compensatory of forestation in Madhya Pradesh. I mean, uh, you know, so what happens to Andaman and Nicobar? You know, so I think that's what I said that we need our science to actually inform our policy and we need more people to understand and uh, 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 get into this. And this is what even professor said that maybe civil society and organizations like uh, IMPRI uh, can, uh, uh, can play uh, a role in uh, uh, in this. Uh, yes, I think we need to increase financing for adaptation because I think a very small amount of the climate finance goes into uh, into also into uh, into adaptation. To me, uh, I feel India has some experience of addressing a drought. I shudder to think what to do. What he mentioned about excess rainfall, 
uh, that you know you're going to have so much more of rainfall. Our flooding is uh, the, the newspaper has stopped uh, reporting it. Bihar has gone through like six or seven waves of floods. And earlier, all of them, 20 years ago, also the people would say, and even now, Pani, the water comes and it goes and it deposits silt. So we have good agriculture. But now the water comes and uh, it doesn't go. So, uh, you know, uh, what do we do with this, quote unquote, living with the living with blood? So I think that's something we will really need to uh, uh, think about. Um, thank you, ma'am. And uh, taking from there, all you know, when you talk about uh, now the water is there to stay, especially in several parts of Bihar. So this also means that there is a direct—I mean, there is a direct correlation between the rising temperatures and the water stresses, and uh, on which the food and nutrition security actually yeah. depends. And on this. Uh, on this food and nutrition security that depends on, uh, is the is the health of the people and especially the women and children and uh, you know last year's global hunger index shows yeah. the deplorable situation that india and and of course all of of um, south asia with a few countries uh, as exception uh, that that they are in and um, so my question actually to Professor Moore is uh, more about, you know, uh, people are talking about climate resilient and sustainable agriculture. And then this actually then would mean that uh, it, uh, then we would be influencing the consumer choices because the production uh, patterns would be um, like changing. It would vary because, uh, you know, as you know, we are, uh, we in South Asia, at least we are dependent upon the staples, uh, rice and wheat. And so in the next 20 years, it is being said that uh, you need to cut down on the production of uh, these staples because these are water, they take a lot of water in the, in the production stage. So, and then you spoke about meat, meat production, which is definitely true. So we are definitely going to influence their, the production and the consumption choices. Uh, so, um, and in fact, on these uh, is dependent, um, is the is the food distribution the public distribution system um, to the to the as welfare schemes to the uh, to the poor and vulnerable sections of the society so where are we then headed towards uh, because um, of course the prices are then going to increase so the buying capacity etc will definitely be be challenging and and you spoke about uh, the the Intercountry, um, intercountry hydropower sharing, and uh, you know the agreements. So, do you think that it can be done on an equitable grounding? Because uh, Bangladesh, Nepal, Bhutan, India, especially the sub-regional framework, uh, there are challenges between. Of course, they are moving towards some sort of an agreement, cooperation agreement, bilaterally and as a framework as well. Uh, but um, the geography, the terrain, and um, several other things like politics, it comes into picture. So then where are we headed towards? Um, of course, it is not uh, one, uh, one answer that can be shared, but uh, uh, if you could share your thoughts. And of course, then there are two questions from the audience as well, which we can uh, take after this. Over to you, sir. Um, sure. Thanks very much, Dr. Mehta. And two, yeah, two uh, uh, excellent questions. And I, I think for the 
the kind of first or the first part of the, the question anyway. Um, there is a commonly used phrase, which I'm sure is familiar to, uh, to many uh, folks here, the food, energy, water uh, nexus, which kind of uh, gets at the idea that there is a relationship and uh, really a set of trade-offs um, between uh, how kind of, uh, well, I think what it really comes down to is priorities. Um, whether you're prioritizing uh, maximum agricultural yield for um, you know, kind of hunger reduction or for economic, you know, kind of uh, agrarian development, um, uh, uh, the way in which uh, hydropower, you know, is a significant source of energy um, in places like China to a lesser degree, uh, India, uh, and then how water, um, you know, feeds again back into agriculture, into hydro. So that's an important kind of concept to keep in mind that um, there's this sort of um, relationship between water, energy, food, I mean, many other things as well, uh, ecology, health, um, and changes in, in policy or use uh, in any one of those things affect uh, all of the other sectors. Um, ultimately, it does kind of come back to um, priorities. You know, I guess I would suggest that um, I think the dominant uh, consideration really should be uh, carbon footprints. Um, so if we're kind of thinking about moving to a more sustainable uh, climate policy, both in India and globally, um, something I think we'll have to think more about um, it, are things like what's called climate smart agriculture. And this is, uh, these are kind of farming practices that um, actually aim to maximize the amount of soil that can be um, sequestered, in, uh, sorry, the amount of carbon that can be sequestered in the soil. There are ways that you can farm that sort of maximize this. That is not the way that you maximize crop yield. Um, so there is a, right there, you get a sort of inherent conflict um, between uh, you know, having a policy that maybe maximizes uh, food security or nutrition and one that maximizes climate uh, benefit. So there are gonna be these tough trade-offs, but I would point out that from a global perspective, um, there really shouldn't be an issue with feeding the world um, if we can sort of maintain uh, essentially free trade uh, in food. Um, if we can maintain uh, trade systems that allow the kind of fairly open exchange of uh, food commodity, agricultural commodities, um, there, there really shouldn't be um, uh, an issue with feeding uh, the world. Um, you know, I mean, some uh, obviously subtleties there, you'll have to have assistance for um, the poorest, you know, financial assistance, things like that. Um, but that ultimately comes back to kind of politics rather than, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, climate per se. Um, so that's all to say that there are tensions and trade-offs that are involved. Um, and that's something that political leaders are going to have to wrestle with. Um, but I think at least in the short and medium term, um, we really do need to, to prioritize uh, climate mitigation, because if we don't, the long-term effects on those other things that we care about, whether it's water or food security, are going to be much worse. Um, so that's, I guess, the um, you know the first uh, first point I would uh, um, I would make uh, make there. Um, I I see actually we yeah maybe um, we have a couple of um, uh, of questions. Yes. So, Can I read um, that to you? Yeah, sure. If you, yeah, if you... yeah. This is by Dechum Palmo, who thanks you for the presentation. And you mentioned in your talk that uh, China's damming on the upper Brahmaputra will not have a significant impact on the downstream river flow. But many incidents have happened in Arunachal Pradesh and Assam, 
where huge changes in the river flow affects the local farmers. What do you think about the super dam that's coming up in the Great Bend? What impact will it have on the downstream? And the other is why China has not signed a water sharing treaty with any of the downstream countries and what can a downstream country do when China exploits the international rivers? Yeah, so uh, good, good uh, uh, questions. And, and thank you, uh, uh, Dechen, for attending. Uh, we've had a couple of email uh, correspondences, I know, over the years. So um, it's a pleasure to, um, to be able to, to interact with you um, virtually, at least. Um, so look, you know, I, I don't mean to suggest there's no um, impact or no negative impact from a 60 gigawatt hydro dam um, being built on the, on the uh, upper Brahmaputra. Um, it will have a really significant uh, effect. But I think it's important if we're sort of thinking about this as an international security issue. Um, I, I would want to, I think it's just important to, to contextualize uh, this because the concern that's often voiced um, in, from Indian audiences and particularly in the press in India is that these dams are gonna sort of cut off um, the flow of water um, downstream into India uh, and Bangladesh. And that's just not really true. Um, that, but that being said, there are significant negative effects from building the dam. It does, uh, even though it doesn't really uh, kind of alter much the total volume of flow, particularly in the lower basin, what it does do is disrupt um, uh, uh, the kind of uh, timing of those flows and it can increase the risk of flooding because a dam will allow you to, I mean, it'll certainly interrupt the flow of water and cause water to back up. So that if uh, there, for any reason, um, the dam operator, China, um, decided to release a larger than usual volume of flow through the dam, or, you know, God forbid, um, there's an earthquake and the dam, the dam fails and there's a huge uh, release of water, um, there is a major, you know, flood risk. So it's not that there are no um, kind of aspects to be concerned about, but I think it's important to understand um, where the potential concern might come from, because it's often thought of as this um, contributor to uh, uh, to uh, Sino-Indian tension, whereas I would argue um, that the, the dams and the water themselves don't really constitute much of a security threat. Um, what we're seeing is just the impact of broader geopolitical tensions between China uh, and India being sort of projected um, into uh, water issues. And I might make one other point about that. Um, I think the, to the extent that water resources kind of figure into uh, Sino-Indian tension, it really has much more to do about territorial disputes uh, in the Himalaya than it does, uh, than it does water disputes uh, themselves. The water disputes kind of just become focal points for um, the territorial disputes. They sort of proxy for um, the territory. I will make one other uh, point about this though. It's, it's, I think it's important um, not to lose sight of um, the construction of these large dams and the associated infrastructure um, will probably have a, a very negative effect on uh, um, local uh, communities and cultures. Um, and one sort of disturbing thing that um, I, I've come across a couple of times in my research on um, large dam projects and the South North water transfer, which we didn't talk about, we can if anybody's interested, it's one of China's major water kind of projects. Um, is the idea that part of the reason for building um, that these big infrastructure projects in uh, Tibet or Xinjiang or other minority dominated regions is in part kind of to um, 
more closely tie those regions to um, the central government and to sort of the People's Republic. Um, and so I think there is a degree to which these um, infrastructure projects um, kind of contribute to uh, a sense of, um, or a strategy of kind of control or um, subordination of local communities and cultures into the broader nation. So I think there is a sort of disturbing uh, and disconcerting kind of human rights um, aspect of, of those infrastructure um, projects. Right, so thank you. Um, there is uh, one question uh, by Nagarajan Krishnamurti. Will, will there be any low-cost technology in solar power usage and in converting the seawater into portable water? Is there um, any scope of it? Would any of our panelists want to speak or Professor Moore? Any response? Professor Moore? Sure, I'd be happy to just um, offer a couple of thoughts on um, both parts of that, uh, that question. So solar power is fascinating because uh, the cost of solar has decreased uh, by uh, more than any other energy source um, in history. Um, and in fact, the degree of kind of scale that we've seen in solar has been, as far as anybody can tell, basically unprecedented in the history, the entire history of technology. I mean, it's really astonishing. Um, and yet um, we still have two big problems. One, um, solar is still uh, you know, too small a portion of the global energy supply to really make uh, a dent in our sort of climate change problem. So even though it's happening about as fast as anything ever has in history, um, it's still not happening fast enough. Um, and at the same time, solar hasn't really um, been able to substitute for um, what's known as baseload power generation. You can kind of think of this as like insurance for keeping the lights on, the, the power that just sort of makes sure that the lights stay on uh, regardless of the fact of whether it's a cloudy day, um, you know, there's a storm brewing, there's dust on the solar panels, whatever. Um, uh, and so that rem those remain kind of significant challenges to solar. Uh, there's a lot of technological development. I think we need um, probably uh, at least one, maybe two more generations of solar technology development before it really gets to a point at which it can be the world's dominant energy source. Um, we also need uh, major progress on uh, energy storage, um, whether it's batteries or some other form of um, storing the power that's generated by solar um, for usage later on. Um, the, then the second part of your question around uh, desalination is a really important one um, because, so I think that the water problem globally um, is mostly about agriculture um, and there's really no technology on the horizon that would uh, make desalination um, a practical solution to uh, agricultural water demand, uh, you know, under all but the most um, kind of unusual niche circumstances. Uh, desalinated water is used for irrigation in Israel uh, in limited uh, quantities, for example, but that's a very special case. Um, and we can't expect that to really ever be true um, on a large scale globally. However, um, it is uh, conceivable that uh, desalination could essentially become um, the, uh, the backup uh, water source for uh, most major cities, especially those on the coasts. Um, we're still a little ways from that. Um, there uh, are some promising developments in uh, renewable uh, kind of powered uh, desalination. Um, uh, that still will not be practical without, again, sort of significant technological um, developments in most cases, 
the one thing that I think would um, today be very feasible in terms of desalination is nuclear uh, powered desalination. Um, but nuclear, you know, has a lot of uh, safety uh, kind of hazards associated with it um, at the moment. It certainly is tremendously expensive. Um, so, you know, for a, a, a country like India, um, that, you know, would remain a, a fairly significant barrier, uh, just the sheer cost involved in, uh, uh, in nuclear power development um, that could also be used for um, desalination. One final point on that, though, which is interesting. Um, uh, so China um, has been sort of leading um, nuclear uh, uh, deployment worldwide. They have about um, 26 plants, I believe, that are in various stages of um, either, uh, you know, kind of pre-commissioning or under design or construction. Um, and recently, uh, the government announced a significant investment in um, non, uh, in a, a new type of nuclear reactor using thorium as the fuel instead of uranium, which is how all uh, commercial nuclear plants presently that they run on uranium. Um, and that thorium uh, fuel cycle would have a lot of advantages, potentially in terms of cost and certainly in terms of um, uh, of safety. So if that technology can be commercialized, um, that could be as important as solar uh, in terms of uh, helping us reduce our emissions, as well as um, helping provide an effectively unlimited uh, source of water, at least for uh, urban water uses. Uh, Simi, I have yes, one question. Yes, yes. I have one yes. question for ahead, uh, Professor. Uh, you mentioned Thanks. about the fascinating uh, progress in uh, solar panels and solar energy. I've heard a couple of people saying about the environment uh, footprint of uh, solar panels. Uh, I wanted to ask him, is that really an issue? Because I, I really don't have any information on that. So like you're saying that solar panels also has a pretty big uh, environment footprint. So I just wanted to understand from, from the professor. Um, well, you know, nothing's, uh, nothing's perfect. Uh, you know, yeah. one of the, the, I forget who first uh, kind of introduced me to this phrase, but I use it all the time is that um, essentially all forms of energy involve uh, a bit of a Faustian bargain, uh, a sort of deal with the devil, if you will. Um, there's, you know, kind of no uh, clean, um, kind of really sustainable source of, uh, you know, of energy. Um, renewables are certain, wind and solar are certainly as close as it gets. Um, I, that's not to say that they have no negative uh, impacts. Um, you know, with wind turbines, for example, you can have very, um, very significant uh, impacts on bird life, for example, very significant mortality of, um, of birds associated with uh, wind turbines. Uh, but I think on balance, you would have to say that uh, the emissions that we can avoid using large scale solar um, far outweigh any um, negative environmental impacts. And a lot of those impacts have to do with the, um, the supply chain, uh, particularly involved in the mining of materials used in solar power uh, manufacture, that the mining process itself can be pretty nasty from a, an environmental point of view. Um, but those impacts are, you know, not to minimize them, but um, they are quite localized. Whereas again, large scale solar, um, at least in principle helps us um, avert catastrophic global climate change. So I would say on balance, there's really no comparison, but, but that's not to say that, um, you know, that, that there's not uh, some negative uh, uh, impacts associated with solar or wind or other um, alternative energy sources. One so, other quick thing that this brings up at significant 
um, I think as we kind of head into uh, the Glasgow negotiations. Um, you know, and this, this is particularly the case with China, but um, we're starting to see, um, you know, some, some human rights uh, considerations color these things. So uh, China is by far and away the, the leading source of uh, a key uh, material and solar panel manufacturer known as polysilicon. Um, the mo most of that polysilicon comes from uh, Xinjiang, um, which, uh, you know, really uh, from a, a most uh, authoritative sources um, is the site of some pretty egregious human rights violations, including forced labor. Um, so I think that is kind of harder to um, get past uh, in the sense that, um, you know, we may be uh, kind of indirectly, the, the massive expansion of solar uh, power may be contributing to some uh, pretty egregious human rights abuses uh, and violations. And that's sort of a harder issue, I think, to, um, to, to uh, get past. Well, thank you. At least I have an uh, informed response now. So that helps. Thank you. Thank you very much. So uh, thank you very much for uh, taking our questions very generously, uh, Professor. Uh, Dr. Ranjana, do you have, would you like to add anything before we move to the concluding round? Uh, yes, in fact, I thank you. Uh, very happy to, you know, you were speaking in terms of the joint financing for transforming, uh, you know, many, many technologies and the use that we would like to do. And the other bit that he mentioned about the climate smart agriculture, I think that is the way forward to go. And we'll definitely have to look at water demand. So very happy to hear that uh, he touched on those topics as well, you know. We have to go for recycling and more recycling to reduce our water footprint. So thank you very much. That's thank all you. that I wanted to thank add. Thank you. Thank you very much, ma'am. So um, I'll just quickly, um, to, to come to the concluding round, and I would request uh, all the panelists, starting with uh, Dr. Ranjana, to uh, just share your perspectives on um, the way forward towards climate action uh, for water security. Uh, any two bullet pointers that you have, policy recommendations, suggestions, where are we moving, how we should move towards uh, this, this uh, scenario where uh, water security can be ensured in our subcontinent. And um, uh, particularly to Professor Moore, uh, you know, uh, John Kerry was here last, uh, a few days back. Uh, he was touring around and uh, a lot of media reports said that uh, he was not really happy with uh, India's commitments and also in China that uh, he was not able to meet uh, the leaders. So uh, what is it uh, about the politics that is going on? Because ultimately, as you've um, you know, alluded to COP26 again and again, are we going to see another debacle or where is the uh, you know, light inside? So if you could uh, talk about that. Um, so I would start with uh, Dr. Ranjana, over to you, ma'am. Yes. So um, regarding the water security, I would, um, you know, like to divide it in two parts. One would be the urban region of India, which has these mega cities where a population of more than 15 million and uh, these regular flooding episodes. So regarding the water security, we have to do something about our flood management. And what I feel about flood management is we have to have these open green spaces and the blue spaces. We know that our, uh, you know, our lakes 
lakes in the urban areas are drying up uh, can we go about cleaning these lakes and um, you know uh, diverting the flood waters that side that is something uh, which we really need to look at so at the policy policy level we will have to look at our blue green infrastructure that we talk about and in the uh, rural sector yes our agriculture the amount of water that we are using and what we are growing can we have uh, sustainable crops for um, uh, for water security so that you know we are secure both food as well as water so those would be my two pointers yeah thank you thank you ma'am uh, yes indira ma'am over to you oh the way forward i was looking that's <laughs> i had so many questions for professor more so please uh, you could share them and then you could uh, no uh, i had asked them in when okay. i was uh, when you gave me an opportunity okay. Okay, earlier sure, sure. i think we need to become more water aware and more uh, water literate i think that's uh, because he rightly said that we can't always look at uh, it being somebody else's job uh, one aspect of it is that we have to ourselves see how we reduce our uh, water footprint and he gave some examples of how to do that uh, regarding the eating meat i you also raised this issue simi and i also felt it's also about not only about choice it's also about the culture uh, you know uh, the culture and the heritage of uh, community so uh, i was a band also with that uh, malnutrition i felt that it was a bit uh, you know the challenges we have but i think yes other than that uh, the bottled water and the other uh, things suggested and reducing and recycling i think that's the way uh, we need to go uh, i think we, i would again re reinforce that two things one is we need to engage more uh, uh, with the with all stakeholders we can't uh, uh, you know not only one civil society talking to another uh, uh it's also talking to government talking to industry talking to what he mentioned that bring all the stakeholders together on one platform be it within one country or across uh, across boundaries because i in the meetings i hear bangladesh cursing us i hear nepal cursing us or then i hear india saying oh we are getting stuff from nepal you know so it's like uh, okay let's get out of this and see how uh, how we can manage water better for uh, for all of us and i think we should take a a cue from the wisdom that we have Uh, how we could manage our water how we grow crops uh, uh, you know we, we we would grow crops that suited the location where we were they were also nutritious i mean the the coarse cereals uh, the coarse grains what we call now and which is becoming popular so those kind of things also and which don't have such a big water and energy footprint and i think if we go local look at local water security local water management then we will also control what uh, professor moore said that you know transporting water has very high uh, energy uh, footprint so we could also help reduce uh, reduce that so yes these are some of the uh, the thoughts thank you ma'am thank, thank you. you wonderful professor moore over to you um okay well i think i would first uh, underscore that um one of the most effective kind of water management policies we could have globally is uh, an effective climate policy and especially um rapid um and deep cuts in uh, our global greenhouse gas emissions another sort of way of saying that i think is that from a, a human perspective um i think most of the the really negative impacts of climate change um that we're concerned about have in one way or another to do with the changing distribution and availability of water um whether that's uh in terms of increased shortage or uncertainty as to you know volumes and flows of water throughout the year 
uh, or whether it's having too much uh, in the, the form of flooding, uh, in the form of sea level rise, uh, saline intrusion into uh, groundwater aquifers, et cetera. But I think as a sort of just, you know, uh, almost like a hashtag, uh, uh, I think from a human point of view, um, many of the most concerning effects of climate change really have to do with water. Um, so I do think we have to think of these things as linked um, and as coupled. Um, to get to uh, Dr. Mehta's question briefly in terms of the politics and I think how to sort of um, shake things loose, um, you know, I think um, unfortunately what we're talking about in terms of decarbonizing at the rate and at the scale that we need to, uh, to avert uh, a, a true climate catastrophe, that really means fundamentally transforming our economies, which uh, almost without exception are really built on fossil fuels. Um, and I think the reason that the politics were so difficult is that the, the scale of that transformation um, is just so great. Um, and at the moment, there are still a few major missing pieces of the puzzle of how we can um, transform our economies um, and truly decarbonize. We have a lot of the right technologies, especially uh, solar, uh, solar power. But again, there are key kind of missing pieces like uh, battery storage. Um, or like smart grids that it, it will kind of allow us to, to, to make the most um, of renewable energy. Um, so we need more investment in technology, uh, research and development in order to, uh, to make this transition and make it you know, sort of practical and economical um, to, uh, to kind of uh, achieve this transformation, this decarbonization. Um, that being said too, and getting back to kind of thinking about water, um, you know, I, I remain pretty optimistic that we can avert a, uh, you know, a true catastrophe um, with enough investment in technology. Uh, another, by the way, uh, Dr. Meza brought up uh, sugarcane and sort of things like this. Um, in addition to clean technology research, which is essentially about materials, um, uh, especially nanomaterials, another key area of technology development that I think is really important uh, is uh, uh, synthetic biology and gene editing. Um, which does show a lot of promise to help make crops uh, more drought resistant. I mean, it already has made crops significantly more drought resistant, um, but also potentially to uh, reduce uh, water use. Um, and there are even things that you know, are maybe a little bit further out uh, in terms of the horizon, but, but maybe practical like um, making uh, bacteria found in the soil more efficient at fixing carbon um, so that they could actually um, help sequester carbon uh, from the atmosphere much more quickly, for example. Um, so I think biotech and uh, material science are the, the key kind of areas for more uh, technology research and development. And I think if we're able to do that effectively, um, that will help to make the politics easier um, as climate mitigation and emissions reduction becomes cheaper uh, and easier. Absolutely, thank you, thank you so much. Um, that was a wonderful discussion today and uh, so many questions, so many points, perspectives. I think uh, we can have yet another discussion on the same topic with all of you and we'd still be, you know, uh, seeking answers to so many points. So thank you so much. And I would like to now propose the vote of thanks um, on behalf of the IMPRI Center for Climate Change. Uh, for environment, climate change, and sustainable development. Um, this excellent discussion uh, led by Professor Scott Moore. Thank you, sir, for joining us early in the morning. And to our, dis our distinguished panelists, Professor Dr. Indira Khurana and Dr. Ranjana Ray Chaudhary, 
to all those who are watching us here on uh, Zoom and also on Facebook Live and who would also watch us later on YouTube and uh, listen to our podcasts. So thank you so much. And we hope that we continue to keep learning from you. This is very important and this is really going to be pertinent for times to come. So thank you. And I wish you all on behalf of IMPRI a very, very good day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Thank you so much. A pleasure. Bye -bye. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you.